1: Good evening, a historic day at Stormont after two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed, an agreement that unites unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging... Historic Dermot Nesbitt was one of the negotiators of the Good Friday Agreement and then a key backer of David Trimble in the years after the deal was struck in 1998.
2: Where I've disagreed with David Trimble, he said the Belfast Agreement was better than Sunningdale. But what I say is the Belfast Agreement was not as good as what was offered by the Westminster government in March 73.
1: The Cross Garman has had a remarkable life in politics and academia and became a Stormont Minister. He was standing beside the unionist politician and academic Edgar Graham when he was murdered by the IRA at Queen's University in 1983.
2: Law lecturer Edgar Graham, who was also a unionist politician, was shot on the street outside his university.
1: Now 75, he reflects on where unionism went wrong in Northern Ireland's early decades, where it's still going wrong today, and what the future holds.
2: I wish others had been participating in it and could see what was needed, because it's regretful that 50 years later they are advocating. That which was offered.
1: In this episode of The Bell Tale, our Northern Ireland editor Sam McBride interviews Dermot Nesbitt.
0: You got involved in unionist politics in the early days of the Troubles, the late 1960s, a time of great, um, not just political upheaval, but societal upheaval. You were very close to Brian Faulkner who was the leader of unionism at that point, point? and Brian Faulkner was someone who some people listening to this won't know very much about, if anything. What was he trying to do in Northern Ireland and what was he trying to do to the Austro-Unionist Party in that period?
2: Well, leading up to 1973, he was trying to be, in realistic terms, more pragmatic and finding a way forward. Though he'd been a strong orange man, He'd been very strong on that. But nevertheless, he tried to find a way forward. And he was an East Down MP for for the Stormont Parliament. And I was an East Down member, a young unionist. And I used to question him at at meetings. I enjoyed questioning him.
0: Faulkner was trying to establish power sharing in Northern Ireland. He was trying to um, push the boundaries of what the unionist population at that point were prepared to accept. And ultimately, it turned out that they weren't prepared to um, go along with what he was doing. In retrospect, was it a hopeless cause? Was unionism just not ready for the sorts of radical changes that he was proposing? Or could it have been done if things had been done slightly differently?
2: Yes, you make an interesting point. Some people have said, a leader must be ahead of the pack, but not too far ahead of the pack. Now, the question is, this is where I've disagreed with David Trimble. He said that the Belfast Agreement was better than Sunningdale. I don't deny that. But what I say is the Belfast Agreement was not as good as what was offered by the Westminster government in March '73 prior to the Sunningdale communique as it's properly called in November 73 it was looking for more or less a voluntary coalition no coalition is voluntary they're all involuntary Nick Clegg and David Cameron they didn't want to share power but they knew no alternative and Jerry Fitt was a upright nationalist who I knew and respected and he tried to form a government with Brian Faulkner six Brian Faulkner got six members of the 11-member executive, because he had to have a majority. Even though his party didn't justify six. And I wish others had been participating in it and could see what was needed, because it's regretful that 50 years later they are advocating that which was offered in 1973. Fact. Now, where's the lesson to be learned?
0: And why did those people reject it? Was it simply in every case that they wanted to stick to the Westminster model of um, the party that has 50% plus one of the seats is able to form a government? Or in some cases, was it simply about bigotry?
2: Well, I wouldn't like to think of it was bigotry, but maybe the psychology of it is people who have had government and had power like to keep it and don't like to share it. So maybe in 73, no, not an inch We had the power, we want the power. But I still say, and it's easy for me to say it, but they should have been able to see what was needed, that they had to come together and work something out. And the Westminster government said that it can no longer be solely based on a single party. The executive must be composed of persons who are prepared to work together. And that's what it said in March 73. 73. That's what Jim Alliston, they're all saying now, if we can't get it, let's get a grouping of people who are prepared to work together and the rest can form an opposition. There it is 50 years ago. Going
0: before we get to 1973, the first 50 odd years of Northern Ireland, what do you think were the major mistakes that unionism made?
2: Well, I understand Carson said, make the minority cling to you. We should be more accommodating to them. I think I'm told he said, treat the minority with generosity and bind them to you. Now, if, if he said that, which I understand he did, that was something they should have done. The time to be generous is when you have the authority and when you have the vast majority and think ahead. But of course it was formed by a majority and who would have thought you know, whenever there's there so, I don't like to use it. So many Protestants against Catholics, it wouldn't change, but it did change, does change. One shouldn't be surprised it changes, and one should have been preparing for change. We tried to prepare in '73, 50 years ago. I repeat, and the document offered what they're looking for now, and they wouldn't do it. And even then, this document that you say I'm quoting in 1973 talked about a Bill of Rights, which we're still talking about a Bill of Rights. But it does say uh, that the pattern of rights has to be matched by a balancing pattern of obligations. This is said in 1973. The right to equality of benefit and opportunity is incompatible with abstention. Now we know who fits the abstention position at this moment. Rights they wish for, but responsibilities and Nicola Sturgeon of SNP in Scotland. She's a devout nationalist, but she doesn't abstain. She participates. Need I say any more? 50 years ago, that's what was said. You don't say it today. Oh dear. And this,
0: this, for clarity, was the position of the UK government? Yes. It which... was being put to the parties as a proposal. And essentially what you're saying, if I'm if I'm not mischaracterising it, is that unionist stupidity um, didn't embrace this and ultimately they got something which was not as advantageous to their interests.
2: Yes, that's why I was careful when I said at the start, when David Trimble said that the uh, Belfast Agreement was better than Sunningdale, I said, yes, it was, but the Belfast Agreement wasn't as good as what was offered in March 73. The resulting negotiations, Faulkner was in a weak position. He was the only unionist actually was involved, there was the various other unions who abstained from participating. Had they all participated and seen what was needed we might have got a solution then and we might have been in a much better position. And indeed, even then, in 1973, Sinn Féin weren't even on the radar.
0: And there are unionists in the Ulster Unionist Party who blame Ian Paisley for the failure of Sunningdale, who blame him for the failure of more moderate forms of unionist politics in that period. And clearly, Ian Paisley was a a massive political force. He was incredibly influential. He was charismatic, etc. But... Is it also the case that there was a significant section of the Ulster Unionist Party, people like Bill Craig? who Harry West. Harry West, people who were very traditional, very staunch in their unionism. They might not have got along with all of the Paisleyite form of politics, but they were equally entrenched against reform. And so if Paisley had never come um, onto the scene, is it also the case that actually unionism as a whole simply wasn't ready for that?
1: The new Northern Ireland Assembly, in which Catholics and Protestants share power for the first time in history, held its first meeting this week amid scenes of chaos and anarchy. Loyalist members of the Assembly, led by Ian Paisley, tried unsuccessfully to disrupt the new Parliament. Well,
2: it was the United Ulster Unionist Council, the U.C., which comprised various ones, Bill Craig, Vanguard and what have you. But Paisley, the Reverend Dr. late Ian Paisley, was dominant he was charismatic, as you say. He articulated views, and therefore they could coalesce round it. But an interesting thing, Brian Faulkner, after the seventy-five election, when I was agent, he had 16,000 first preference votes in the 1973 election, romped home in the PR. In the 1975 election, he got 3,000 first preference votes and barely got in by transfers from some of the treble you but he then formed the Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, a UPNI, and I joined it with him. And I remember the Prentice Boys of Derry convened a meeting for Unionists to get round the table and Dr. Paisley wouldn't sit round the table. And this phrase was, he was always good with the phrase, I will not sit with those who would sit with fit. And that was Gerry Fitt. He wouldn't sit with us because we'd sit with fit. Ironically, he ended up sitting with the former chief of staff of the IRA. There's a lesson to be learnt there. By and large, yes, they have, because they're all now calling for, by and large, a voluntary coalition from Arlene Foster to Jim Allister to the Alliance Party to Naomi Long, John Cushman, and had a letter in the paper the other day that there should be a you know, coalition and those who don't want to form it, form the opposition. So yes, they have learnt it, but the thing is, have they learnt it too late? Given the opinion, poll and given what I've written over the years, the written word's the enduring word, unionism should have been more pragmatic and open and embracing of nationalist nice opinion. I've written an Irish language. Of course they should have an Irish language. There was much opposition to that. The Scottish of an Irish, Ar- a, Wel- a Scottish language, the Welsh of a Welsh language, the first minister can speak in Welsh, in Wales. You can be British and Irish. I remember telling Joan, read that, writing to him. Nothing to preclude you. In fact, we are a multi-state country. And therefore, there's nothing unique about that. In fact, this bit about them talking about, oh, the island of Ireland should be united, I've written about this as well. Borneo is an island in Southeast Asia. It comprises Indonesia. Part of it is Malaysia. And part of it's the Sultan of Brunei. Three separate Jurisdictions on one island.
0: So there's a there's a there's a ge, there's there's a geographic logic to saying that it is an island, and many people say an island ought to be a single entity. But what you're saying is that there are islands that aren't, and obviously Scottish nationalists want um, Scotland as part of the island of Britain to be a separate country, and um, Welsh nationalists, etc. So it's not necessarily as straightforward as Irish nationalists. No, perhaps I, say.
2: I could also say if you look at the geography of it, English is their first language, though. Irish is their first language it's one of these contradictions but they all speak English and uh, Ireland is geographically beside Britain on the western part of Europe it seems more logic with the sixth largest economy in the world that maybe the rest of Ireland should join the United Kingdom you know the, the, there's more logic to that but this is th- these are cases that need to be made but that's not the most important one at the moment
0: Coming forward to 1998, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan, they say. John F.
2: Kennedy said that. (laughs) Victory victory is a hundred fathers, defeat is an orphan, I think was his phrase. Much
0: more precise. There were an awful lot of people involved in the Good Friday Agreement negotiations from all sorts of parties. What was your role within the Austrian Unionist delegation?
2: My role was I was the leader of the equality human rights dimension in the Strand 3. Strand 1 was within Northern Ireland, Strand 2 was North-South, Strand 3 was sort of uh, cross-party, cross-dimension, and I led the equality human rights. And I pushed for what I believe still today, as it was then, for the Council of Europe's Convention for the Protection of National Minorities. I articulated it publicly, saying in an article, why have you not ratified this UK and in January 1998 they eventually did it when I pushed them and they ratified it and the Irish government committed to ratifying it. But the fundamental principle, as I make it very clear, and this is why they breach international law, that minorities are to be protected but within a fundamental principle, not just any old principle, a fundamental principle that territories are to be respected. And it's interesting, the European Union, Whenever the various countries had left the USSR, this is what caused them to get this Council of Europe's might because Europe became unstable. There were Czechs living in Slovakia, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever they were going to join the European Union, the Council of Europe said, we must all have you signing up to the fact that the territorial integrity must be respected as a fundamental principle.
0: And yet within Northern Ireland, surely while Republicans, while Sinn Féin say that they obviously want Irish unity, they want a border poll, etc. Fine. But in a de facto sense, don't they accept the territorial integrity of Northern Ireland as it is now constituted? They meet the king when he comes here. They sit in a legislature, which is in in a British system. They accept the courts. They accept the police service of Northern Ireland. I mean, isn't there a mismatch there between the rhetoric from Sinn Féin and their actions?
2: They respect it in large measure. That doesn't mean they respect it in total measure. Just look at SNP, look at Plaid Company, look at Sinn Féin. You cannot say they all give the same respect to the United Kingdom, yet they all wish for separation. So therefore, there is a certain amount of respect. And that's part of my problem, why in supporting the Convention of Europe, I saw it as the way forward and still do that minorities need to be protected. We need to offer them cultural rights, linguistic rights, educational rights, religious rights. These are all enshrined in a bill, which could be enshrined in a bill of rights, which we haven't got because too many of them want too many rights, which are not what was defined in the Belfast Agreement. And yet it's all to be done within the territorial integrity of the state. And I felt we were getting somewhere because you even had in the talks, you say about my participation. At at part of the time the United Kingdom government had a paper which said there may be some elements that are beneficial to Northern Ireland. Whereas they later said, we will legislate for. They made it more precise. They tried to view Northern Ireland as unique. It's not unique. There's hardly a country in Europe that doesn't have a national minority, and some that link with their neighbor. So I was Optimistic in the part I paid, but now I feel I have been undermined because of the fundamental dimension of the uncertainty created by the protocol in Northern Ireland. Given the um, given the ref- or not given the referendum, given the Northern Ireland consensus of 2021, unionism has to act. They have to do something. In fact, they should have done it. I even wonder if it's too late to do something. We must get the executive restored. We must be seen to be working, whereas we're seen to be in a non-working situation, which doesn't help the unionist position. But at the same time, to get the executive working, the protocol needs to be amended. I would describe myself as a militant moderate in that sense. I'm moderate that I want to see everything, but I'm very strong in my views. And the best way to do it is to articulate This aspect of international law is as valid today as it was 25 years ago. Because there we have, in today's paper, you get the shadow foreign secretary saying, shameless breach of international law. I say, shame on you. But then the bit that bugs me most of all is unionism isn't articulating it.
0: And some people when they saw what David Trimble negotiated in the agreement in 1998 and some people perhaps when they listen to what you're saying here about protection for minorities, about um, building in robust uh, legal protections in things like a Bill of Rights, they think that actually what's going on here is not simply about protecting uh, current minorities in Northern Ireland, and as the census shows and as recent election results show, I suppose everybody is a minority in Northern Ireland to a certain extent, but it's actually about unionist leaders thinking ahead to the possibility of Irish unity, that they're thinking in 10 years' time, 50 years' time, whenever that might come, this is about baking in protections. Is that, is that what you have somewhere in your mind when you say these things?
2: No, quite the reverse. I'm thinking that we should try and accommodate minority or minorities within the United Kingdom. Make them feel at home in the United Kingdom. It's the reverse. I'm not doing it to thinking that X years ahead. Whenever I wrote it 25 years ago, I wasn't even thinking of of unity. So therefore, why should I think about it today? My arguments have not changed. The written word is the enduring word. And it is to make them feel at home. You can be Irish and British. They are not mutually exclusive. You can be Welsh and British, Scottish and British. British is citizenship. It's nothing to do with your national identity. They are separate. And we should have not as much flag-waving. We should be more accommodating in our diversity. Only if we do that can we preserve the union. And I'm not saying, I take a view that what I'm trying to get is not necessary to increase the Unionist vote as such, but that those who are not of a Unionist persuasion, namely to vote unionist, are still content to have the status quo of being part of the United Kingdom. Northern Irish or independent, whatever it is, neither Irish or British, that large cohort out there that will dictate the future in a sense. I don't say come back to the Unionist Party. I say here, be what you want to be. Be part of the United Kingdom, where the sixth economy is strongest in the world. It makes sense economically, socially, politically, and we have to create an environment that they feel at home. It may not be just too late, but it had. But it should have been done much sooner, whereas now we're seen to be reacting maybe to a census twenty twenty one, whereas we should have been reacting to what was needed twenty-five years ago. Looking back
0: at the agreement after almost a quarter of a century, what did David Trimble, who was your leader, the leader of your party at that time, what did he get right and what did he get wrong?
2: (laughs) What did he get right and what did he get wrong? Well, what he got right was the aspect of seeking a compromise. We had to move forward. He was under extreme pressure as well, like Faulkner. You had Paisley and various other ones coming up and rattling the cages, as it were, outside Stormont. I remember that. And, um, And therefore, he was under extreme pressure. And under pressure not just by loyalists, but under pressure by Tony Blair. I remember before we went up to the final position that um, we he brought in his party and we had a meeting. And I think it was Jonathan Powell put a note under the table to say, are you coming? And uh, then we come out of that meeting and you see the other party standing at the door watching us. We went into the party room. Trimble went upstairs, probably saw Tony Blair. And then come down and remember his words vividly. Right, let's go up. And of course, at that time, I think Jeffrey and some, some walked out. So he was under pressure. It's hard to say that he got anything wrong given the conditions he was operating under. One always has to judge your actions on the basis of the backcloth against which you take those actions, which I've tried to say in various other times at, at this, this interview. You, you cannot judge actions in isolation. So did he get wrong the north-south dimension? No, possibly not. But then we got one bit inserted that it all had to be agreed that any minister who was going to the south had, if the minister was unionist, they had to have a nationalist with them and vice versa. So we got certain balances written in. What I regret is that we don't have a Bill of Rights to reflect that, Uh, the Westminster government committed to legislate in accordance with international law? Well, it hasn't done that by agreeing the protocol. Because international law, the Framework Convention for the Protection of National Minorities, went through Westminster as endorsed by the government. So the government was committed to protecting minorities within the rule of law. In fact, the Irish Taoiseach, he also said their business of dealing with neighbours is through international law. But Leo Varadka, by this statement about I will protect the national minority, there'll be no hard border in Ireland, that breaches international law. Get anybody to say it. So, it's not that David Trimble has made mistakes. It's that subsequent to that, we have not articulated fully the benefits of the Belfast Agreement if they were fully implemented.
0: Isn't isn't there a real politic to this in that The British government has accepted since the early nineteen seventies, I think it's fair to say that the Irish government has a legitimate interest in articulating concerns, views of the nationalist um what was then the nationalist minority in Northern Ireland, what is part of three minorities in Northern Ireland now. And so therefore they they had a unique position. So is it is it correct for you to say that it's a breach of international law where the British government and the Irish government, as the two sovereign governments if you like, are in unanimity about this? They're not they're not in disagreement Agreement about this?
2: I don't have a problem with them talking together, not at all. But I go back even to 1973, the document where it says there have been arguments that the government should, at this stage, in consultation with the Republic of Ireland, write into the constitutional bill for Northern Ireland a complete scheme for such a council. That was saying the two governments should work together. And they said, and then, no, that shouldn't be. We should do it with the consent of. Uh, the majority, minority. Now, we had the various agreements from 82 and 92, you know, that uh, set up. Remember that famous one where Margaret Thatcher said, no, no, no? And we had that agreement where they had a legitimate right for consultation. But that that has been to a certain extent overcome by the 1998 agreement because whatever happens... Within the North-South, it has to be agreed by both because both ministers have to be there and it has to be reported to the Assembly.
0: We've talked quite a bit about the failures of unionism, both historically and more recently. Right now, nationalists are uh, very firmly of the view that history is on their side, that there's an inevitability towards Irish unity, that demographics are in their favour, that that electoral politics are in their favour, that Brexit is now in their favour and to a certain extent that the stupidity of unionist leaders over um, many years is in their favour. What mistakes are nationalists and the leaders of nationalism making right now, in your view?
2: Maybe they're making that presumption that it's inevitable on on an island basis, which I don't think it's inevitable on an island basis. And I don't want to diminish what we must do, but the proportion seeking Irish unity has not significantly increased. So they have been maybe too presumptive. I would not wish to be as presumptive as they are. Neither should unionism be presumptive that the union is safe, even though I say to you that the that the proportion for separation is now what about thirty percent or something? It's far short of fifty. We have to accommodate and should have done it and must do it. And it may not be too late. Note I always say, it may not be too late, but we better get started now.
0: And some unionists look at the future, the next 10, 15, 20 years, if Northern Ireland stays in the union, and they think that if the price of that is Northern Ireland so fundamentally altering in terms of how it looks and feels, Irish language, road signs, statues at Stormont of John Hume or Martin McGuinness or whatever it might be, these symbols, these things that are very symbolic, um, but do not change the constitutional position they think that's not something they're interested in, that it's either Northern Ireland essentially stays much more as it is right now, or it's gone completely. Is is it a price worth worth paying for unionism, in your view, for Northern Ireland becoming much more Irish in terms of how it looks, how it feels, if it stays within the union?
2: There is no problem I have with that generally, but just to give a few aspects, you talk about Irish language, street signs. Bill of Rights, if it follows the Council of Europe, is... You could have Irish language or whatever the language is if the community in that area wish for it. So you just don't have it overall. And um, therefore, I don't see a problem because you can be Irish and British. I'm not trying to make nationalists or Irish people vote Unionist. I'm trying to say, look, economically, socially, even geographically, it is much better that we stick together. English is the accepted first language, and therefore there, there is much to unite us and there is much to make us separate, but a separate Irish identity I'm quite happy with and remaining within the United Kingdom.
0: What most frustrates you about its structures as they do operate at Stormont in the institutions?
2: What most frustrates me is we now have... It was changed, first of all, in... Um, St. Andrews to the, not the largest party within unionism, but the largest party. And you now have de facto, almost a URI, uh, veto. If the DUP says no, out we go. If Sinn Féin says no, out we go. And the both have done so. And this is where they're saying, well, let's have a coalition of those of the willing. Even though Nick Clegg and David Cameron, as I say, weren't willing, but they nevertheless had a coalition. Uh, and, and therefore, um, you know, that, that's the problem. That's the problem. I think,
0: aren't, there, aren't there fundamental structural problems yes. in terms of delivering good governance that, Mand- are, that are stemming from 1998? So it's not just about the parties and how they behave, but actually this system of mutual vetoes was at the core of the agreement.
2: I would agree with, and that's what I was going to come on to about this veto. Mandatory coalition has served its time, I believe. We have to move forward to having voluntary and inverted commas coalition Uh, because a mandatory doesn't work. Because if the mandatory says, oh, there's the first and there's the deputy first, if one resigns, the other resigns, have to. That is not a way to have stable government. So that was the bit I was coming to, that the bit that should be removed is the um, mandatory coalition.
0: Even though that at this point would quite possibly mean that unionism would lose a lot of its storm ministries, that the DUP would not be in government right now. Because the other parties would have more in common with each other, Sinn Féin, Alliance, SDLP, maybe Ulster unionist than with the DUP.
2: Uh, Well, all I would say is, as those who have said for uh, a voluntary coalition, it should respect the broad community. That doesn't mean to say it has to have a mandatory basis, but it means there should be unionism within there, nationalism within there, and non-identified within there. And those who don't want to be in there... Don't form it, but it should be a coalition back to 73. The executive must be composed of persons who are prepared to work together by peaceful means for the benefit of the community. That was written 50 years ago, and that still applies. It can be a coalition of the willing, but it should also reflect the community spectrum which is more than one community. So I can't see Sinn Féin, SDLP and Alliance. They could form a majority, but without unions, it would not reflect the breadth of the community. So there has to be that bit tagged on. Voluntary, but reflecting the spectrum of the community. Get rid of mandatory.
0: Here, thank you very much for your time, Dermot. Much appreciated. This episode of
1: The Bell Belltel was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, with Sam McBride. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Clips from Thames Television... AP, the BBC, ITV, RTE.
0: When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.